taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we step into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while taking Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Uh, last week, we had on with us uh, Jerry Bogatz, and, uh, a philosopher, a theologian, and uh, even a, a scientist, and he has that rare combination that you really don't find uh, with many people these days. And so we're going to bring him back on with us here in just a few short minutes minutes. Uh, this is the last episode of our summer interview series. Uh, we had an abbreviated season this year, uh, but we uh, we, uh, we had some wonderful interviews, and we know this one's going to be a fantastic one as well. And so we're looking forward to some future interviews that we'll do on the Bellator Christie podcast very, very soon. But we want to let you know about, in the meantime, uh, season six that's scheduled to roll out September 22nd. We've got uh, three major theological issues we're going to discuss uh, in Season 6. First of all, starting off with pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. Then we're going to talk about soteriology, the study of salvation, before concluding the season with a uh, look at the revelation and knowledge of God as we talk about our second section in the Theology Proper series. And so we're looking forward to that. That's coming up September 22nd. We're going to try to not only have this available to you uh, on the Bellator Christie podcast where you're listening to this podcast now, but we're going to attempt to possibly uh, start uh, showing some of our conversations, having the podcasts on our YouTube account. If you go to youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie, you should be able to find it there. And we're going to attempt... Again, attempt, try, are the operative words, to possibly have this on social media as well. So uh, stay tuned for more details. We're going to give it a shot, see how it goes. Um, as Curtis will tell you, I, I have a face uh, for radio and not one that you see, but we're going to try it anyhow, <laughs> see how it goes. So... Uh, so anyhow, well, we'll go we'll go that route. So speaking of which, uh, we're going to introduce the man who needs no introduction from Montana, one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, that is Curtis Evelo. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Hey, folks, um, just real quickly, I want to remind everybody, if you're interested in a uh, what we call the Sword and Shield, it's a newsletter that Bellator Christie Ministries puts out. It's the overall ministry of the articles, the the speaking, the 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 podcast, and such. Um, but we put it out uh, every couple of months. Um, it's kind of like a you know every season, every season change. We put it out there, um, but it, it's 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 free. That's 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 right. F R double E free <laughs> to any of those that want to sign up and and send us in an email and and we'll go ahead and just put in your email. You know, hey, you want to sign up for this uh, newsletter and and such, and we'll get you signed up and and going out the door. Uh, send out the door to you, and it'll uh, it'll uh, get to you, and you'll be able to enjoy uh, seeing what we're up to. Maybe the, some of the inner workings of Bellator Christie Ministries of what what we have on the schedule, what we have planned for the next uh, few months going out. So please sign up and send out your send us your email, and we'll get you we'll get you listed. 
We already have a good contributor list uh, already and growing, and we hope to see that list double. It would be nice to see this thing double and, and, and maybe have a huge list of, of individuals receiving the Sword and Shield. So be sure to let us know if you'd like a copy. And, and as Curtis said, it's the grand prize of free, and you can't beat that. So we want to welcome back with us uh, this week Jerry Bogatz. Jerry is one of our contributors at Bellator Christie, and uh, we are just so happy uh, that he's joined our team. Uh, Jerry Bogatz is a personal friend of mine. We met up at uh, Liberty University. Uh, Jerry was born and raised in the Chicago area. Jerry and his wife Kathy relocated to Lexington, Virginia in 2015, where they reside to this day. As a scientist, Jerry worked as a research uh, research scientist and project manager in the immunodiagnostic and DNA diagnostic product development. Uh, a little bit better the second time around. Uh, I tried that. For, <laughs> for, for Abbott, Abbott Laboratories in northern Chicago. Uh, Jerry's a Ph.D. candidate in the Ph.D. in Theology and Apologetics program at Liberty University. He graduated from Biola University with two degrees, an M.A. in Apologetics and an M.A. in Science and Religion. He is a resident at, uh, the 20, in 2013 at the C.S. Lewis Fellowship at the Discovery Institute. Uh, Jerry received training at the Cross-Examined Apologetics Training in 2014. Uh, ministerially, he served as a pastoral and teaching elder at Evanston Bible Fellowship in Evanston, Illinois. And Jerry's primary areas of research are focused around the integration of science and theology, biblical anthropology, bioethics, and worldview studies. So it is an esteemed honor and privilege to welcome back with us Jerry Bogatz. Yeah. Okay. Welcome, Jerry. All right, here we go. <laughs> Leaving the world of science to the metaphysics and... Ready for uh, what it means to be human. Ready for round two, and, yeah. and we we haven't quite got this up on YouTube yet. Uh, we'll, we'll start this with this with the uh, season six, but uh, it, I really wish you could have uh, seen us in between a recording podcast because we're actually recording this in one session. And so, <laughs> definitely want to thank Jerry and Curtis for hanging with us uh, because. Uh, but uh, in, in the intermission, I uh, had my cheese hat on. And uh, so, uh, again, <laughs> as, as we said last week, um, we, we, Jerry and I proved that a Packers and Bears fan uh, can be good friends. And so, <laughs> so let's, let's start. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Jerry, let's start off. You've done a lot of research on the image of God in humanity. Um, what is it that makes human beings what they are? What makes a human being human? Okay, that is the... I don't know what to say. Sixty trillion dollar question. Um, if we could fit, get that, get, get a complete consensus on that, maybe it's a thirty-one trillion dollar question and solve the national debt. Um, <laughs> it is the question, and you're going to get different answers in different areas. You know, different areas or different disciplines are going to go different ways to try to answer this question. What is unique, or in another way, what is so special? about humanity and either from a from a anthropological or paleontological point of view some will focus on brain capacity size of the brain Um, larger brain capacity allows for more characteristics of more cognitive development Um, oh you know areas of self-awareness that type of thing that 
what the, so that that's used as a distinguisher or some type of demarcation between humans and non-humans from the evolutionary point of view. Bill Craig in his latest book, The Quest for the Historical Atoms, co goes into this and he lays it out. He lays out the data quite nicely um, and trying to discern, you know, from that point of view where humanity begins when it when it is not um, and the differentiation between the different uh, hominids and all that so and he's also addressing the theological i've read the book and um i recommend it um it, it's 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 well done and bill this is uh, built a lot of work and research on this question that's really been nagging at him for quite a while so that's that is the big question what does it mean uh, psychiatry professor at uh, ucla published a book. It's called Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. So he's arguing that this, this entity called the mind is the heart of being human. And so you're going you're gonna to get different answers to this type of thing of what differentiates us you know, qualitatively and quantitatively. I think we all have an intuitive sense that there's something Really different between us and and um, a cat or a dog or a cow um, or a primate, you know. There's we're just something hugely different. We we have that sense. How do we quantify it? How do we explain it? Uh, some will say, well, we share. 85, 90%, whatever it is, 95% of the homology or the DNA of a chimpanzee. Well, that doesn't show anything. I mean, it's not the similarities that matter, it's the differences. Um, and, and what those things, what, those, what that DNA codes for. We share the fifth, we have the same chromosome, we have a similar chromosome, 55% of a banana. I mean, so. <laughs> it doesn't make us you know, bananas, does it? Out, <laughs> yeah, you can't take, homology is great. Uh, but it doesn't really get you very far with respect to understanding the difference of between us. So mm -hmm. it's a tough question to ask. And um, so science kicks in, uh, philosophy kicks in and answers this, sociology, you know, we're all trying to kick in and answer this question. And I, I like this quote or this idea. I've used it a lot. It's from a 20th century anthropologist, Lauren Isley. And he, he said, man is the cosmic orphan. He's the only creature in the universe who asks, why? Do you see your bovine friend in the field reading bovine philosophy? You know, they don't do that. Um, we don't, they don't ask why questions, or at least we don't have any sense that they do. No, any no they don't. They, they don't, I, yeah. I promise. Yeah. Okay. You know. yeah. Curtis has quite a, yeah. quite a bit of experience with the bovines. <laughs> yeah, I, he's, he's, a, ca he's a cattle rancher. <laughs> you know, does your dog sit there and mul you know look at the stars and mulinate, you know debate his existence? What it's saying is we're very unique in that sense. Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man has learned to ask questions. He has the ability, the capacity to ask yeah. questions. Yeah. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And it was Leibniz in the 16th century, the great philosopher, mathematician, who said, why is there something rather than nothing? And, um, and he goes on to muse about that question. So it's a, it's a 
we, we there's those characteristics about us that are so different from the rest of creation that it just beg you go why what's so we may and from the evolutionary perspective maybe there's nothing special about it. we just happen to be on the top of the evolutionary heap right now but you could argue evolution's not done and in five million years it'll be something else i guess if we survive five million years but we just happen to be there right now so um nothing really special about about us so that, what it is to be human i think is by as a fundamental question when we start confronting some of the important issues of our day yeah a by by bioethical issues i'll call them sexuality gender identification mm -hmm. abortion euthanasia stem cell research assisted reproductive technology technologies and so forth and so on where all these things we're dealing with today all come back to that question of what is a human being and why that why can't i mess with it and not mess with it why shouldn't what's special about us um so our public policy debates are consumed with this notion of rights my rights your rights the government's rights animal rights but then can we just kind of set that that uh, jargon aside or that rhetoric aside and say, well, where does this idea of universal rights come from? Did it fall off the tree? Did it, does it just exist as a natural that somehow humans have special rights and considerations that others don't? Some would contend, no, we're nothing but another species. Um, why is it okay to gas termites, but not our fellow human beings? Uh, why not be racist and hate people? What's so special about us? Where do we get this idea that we're so special and that we're not? The, so the ethical, the moral, legal, you know, the justice aspects of your come hit, hit us broadside. And it all comes down to who are we? Yeah. So that's that's a that's a fundamental question that impacts several different areas of life. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that's that's the marker or that's the hinge that marks the difference. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, Dr. did you say the difference, Chris? The difference between? No, I think you said. That that was the that was the different. Uh, I can't remember how you said it, Chris. <laughs> you, that that was what makes the difference. Yeah, okay. that's the hinge. That's the hinge that makes that, the that makes the difference. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and sometimes when I I I uh, once I was teaching between I had a youth group and I, I asked the question. I go, hmm. why is it okay? I asked that question. Why is it okay to gas termites and not people? And they looked at me blank, like. And I tried to ask, okay, do you guys understand the nature of rights? Yes. Uh, where do those, you know, what right you understand the nature of justice and rights? And the United Nations gives rights and, you know, that confers rights and that type of thing, the right to this or yes. And I said, well, where, where do those come from? Why? And I really got them thinking about that concept of, you know, we accept these things, but what's what's that what's that word ontology? Yeah, what's the ontology of this thing called rights? Um, and where does it come from? And why should I care? So, and that leads me to, I think I'm jumping ahead to your next question. 
Um, Go for it. What is the image of God in the humankind? Yeah, and these right here. And, and, uh, okay. and, and as you answer this question, Jerry, we, we asked Dr. Todd Wood and Paul Garner last week, and um, it led to a good discussion about different hominids uh, that have been discovered. And, and we asked them, what do you do with other hominids? Um, and and they, they gave an answer where they, they thought that some were... Um, how is it they put it, Curtis? Some were human-like, and some others were were obviously not. But I think they looked at right. it from a cultural standpoint about what they did as a community. Yes. Yep. yep. And so I'd be curious. Yeah, and how they you- looked. Yeah, it was. I think it was how they looked at it was um, the the difference between that was, um, you know, controlling fire developing culture and and um actually forming a a, a society for mm-hmm. form it, those are the things that actually led to those other uh led those other hominids to become or being classified as humans so right. yeah, and, uh, yeah and in the literature some anthropologists um have written about what was they consider a cultural big bang that there was a time and i can't remember specifically i'm just guessing 50,000 60,000 years ago that there's an explosion of culture art jewelry making um drawings Mm -hmm. language uh, communication even burial of the dead you know Mm -hmm. Burial of the dead is huge in the thinking of anthropologists. That is a sign of something of important cultural and about an important um, characteristic of what it means to be human, a human mm-hmm. characteristic, as opposed to a non-human or hominid type. So that type of that type of um, theory or uh, analysis has been out there. I thought it very interesting because, you know, you talk about the pre-Cambrian big explosion where all these body plans seem to erupt. And then pe- then they're then they're making the same type of uh, um, analogy or the, the data showing the same thing in terms of cultural. So it's very interesting. You, you know, so one of the unique situations. What, what's that now? Yeah, as they try to come up with criteria to say, well, okay, Non-human over here, humans, human over there. you know, homo sapiens, which is just a term, or human, you know, contemporary, what we consider ourselves, over here, so. You, you know, one of the unique things, that I was talking with a guy at church just the other day about this issue, and I, my mind went back to the conversation that we had with uh, Wood and Garner over the issue about burial of the dead and how that's a marker of, of humanity. It's I and others am seeing a trend where emphasis on burial of the dead seems to be taking less of a precedent in certain areas as it once did. Um, where cremation, and I'm not going to argue the pros and cons of that, but it's more along the lines of, you know, get your ashes, sprinkle it in the ocean, sprinkle it somewhere else. In some in some yeah. cases, there's not even a memorial service or anything like that. And it makes you wonder if that since that's a marker. Are we, in a sense, losing our humanity 
to some degree. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't know where to quite go with that. Uh, it's <laughs> and it's just just a, one of those general observations. I mean, it, you know, not necessarily an answer to it, but just just kind of a general observation. Yeah, these, um, you know, but one of the things you, I know you have too, Brian. You get in what we're talking about, and even in whatever area. The, the literature and the ideas and the theories and the, the, the is so vast it just gets overwhelming mm-hmm. just to keep up with it any part of it and I've told you this you know as we do this PhD you know it's like the more I do the more I don't feel I know anything <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you <laughs> uh, you know you, you you just feel overwhelmed and you feel there's always something more to read or another angle over here or another angle over there and so you haven't come across it yet and it gets kind of it kind of stifling but that's the world we live we're in an information overcharge mm-hmm. um and it's just crazy so even like we're talking about this and what may have been criteria for humankind 15 years ago is changing and this is something i want to stress Science, in terms of scientists doing the work, is provisional. It's not absolute, and that's the final word. Contemporary culture and it's, that needs to be emphasized more and more. Fortunately, people take a wrong view as some type of absolute certainty. Whatever science says that day is now dogma. That's Com- just not becomes the way gospel to mo- yeah. Work. It doesn't work that way. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, what could be known today, and we know that from um, Einsteinian. I'm sorry, let's go back to Newton, Newtonian mechanics. Oh, that's the end of it. We now understand forces of nature and how things work. Okay, then a guy named Einstein comes along, and he puts the relativity, and okay, now we've got it. And then we're dealing with quantum mechanics at the micro level. <laughs> It, it, it sure wow. seems like that which is proclaimed scientific fact today could be scientific fantasy yes. tomorrow. It's true. And, you know, we just got to be careful with being overly dogmatic about our findings from science because yeah. it could shape. One, yeah. I, I don't want to get too off point, but let me just say this. Brian, you posted some pictures about this new telescope. Mm-hmm. Uh, is Webb? What's it called again? James Webb uh, Space Telescope. Yeah, briefly, I came across an article about what the what this the amazing information and pictures that this thing is generating, and it is now challenging our conceptions about how the universe began. Um, it's 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 bringing questions: Was it really a Big Bang, or was it something else? Mm-hmm. Um, what? Because of the nature of you're getting things that you, you weren't able to detect. Um, so I read it out, I go, that's fascinating. And that's just another idea. I, an example yeah. I'm saying is that science is provisional. It's always... Data comes along. Let, let, me, let me add a little, being an amateur astronomer, uh, I, I followed that news quite quite closely because it does have an impact on our you know, the cosmological argument. Uh, not necessarily other arguments, but that one it does. And... Yes. From what the body of research is is, is showing, it, 
contrary to what some websites are showing, it's not questioning whether the universe has a beginning, but as you said, how the universe began. And there's a lot of questions because these galaxies seem to be far more advanced than what they thought they would be uh, from the initial yes. concept. So th- stay tuned. This is going to get interesting. I, and where it leads, how it leads, you know, we don't know. But but uh, just, just to put that out there, because I know there's been a lot of conversation does this mean the universe is eternal? No, no, not at all. And a lot of the, the cosmologists will say, no, that's not what it means at all. There's still a beginning point, but it may be that the shape of that beginning, as you said, looks very different than what it what it was thought. Yeah, I, I, my, my, my overall point is to say that there's no such thing as subtle science. Exactly. It just doesn't work that way. They are things we know and learn from with more certainty, um, but a lot of things. There's there's a lot of questioning now about natural selection and mutation as a force of evolution. That's going on behind closed doors. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure another naturalistic paradigm will come along, but that that discussion's happening. All right, let's talk about image of God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's get back to that. Okay, uh, image of God. The the three main verses are in Genesis. Uh, I'm going to just briefly talk with, deal with 1, 26, 27, and 28, I believe it is. And then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now, there's a lot going on here exegetically, too. I'm not, I'm not going to go that route, but I want to point out a couple of things. This has kind of a tripart structure, a poetry to it. That's pretty common. There's a parallelism. It's pretty common in, in Hebrew writing and in the Old Testament. Where is it? God said, make man in our image, our likeness. Then he said again, so God created man in his own image. Okay. I said it to you twice. I'm going to say it to you a third time. In the image of God, he created him. That's, that's, there's some force behind that. Three times. Um, the writer of Genesis, it's like, you need to get this. <laughs> you need, this is something you need to understand. Pay attention here. Um, and so the word make and created are important. Uh, you know, th- th- they have specific meaning and specific context. The word here isn't confer. I didn't take two people and put the image of God on them. Right. It's created. It's, and this comes right after, right, right after I think the man, dominion mandate. So there is some linkage there. And this comes after the seventh day of creation, and he gives more time. This is not just animals being made of different kinds. He's he's, he's separating Mm. this particular Mm. creation of man in in God's likeness and image. So I just just find it very powerful. And um, you just need to to rest on that a little bit more. Sometimes we just give it passing. Well, there's a creation account. It's just a powerful statement, and in Genesis five one, it's somewhat repeated, not in the same poetic sense, 
uh, in the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, a repetition of that. And he blessed them and named man in the day when they were created. So there is a little, there's a little bit of repetition and parallelism there too. And then the ethical component comes in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So we have some sense that this is why we 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 don't we gas termites and not people, um, and uh, they're in God's. We are we are God's image. There's something unique and special about us, above the cow, the our dog, whatever other creature you want to bring into play here. So, um, the Imago Dei is very important in my theology and my thinking. And um, I, I, I think we, there's two ways to look at it. There's the substantialistic, what they call, view, or the ontological, versus a relational view or functional view. The dominion mandate stresses more of a functional view. And, or a royal office, human beings, likeness, God's representatives, agents in the world, God grants authorized power to share, or for us to share, um, but it's still his creation, but he allows us to kind of rule and administrate. Um, and generally, it's interesting, in New Testament scholarship, they tend, Old Testament scholars tend to favor what I'll call the functional view, um, this relational aspect of the image of God. Um, and I, th and I think Karl Barth, the contemporary theology, was more along these lines, too. Um, <laughs> we, we know all about him from uh, class bibliology, don't we? <laughs> yes. You know, the, he, the relational functional view is, is still common today, but it's very common in the, in the Old Testament um, scholarship. Um, but the substantialist or ontological interpretation um is practically um what do i want to say it, it captures the me i think it better captures the meaning of the text there's a, there's something about a similarity an ontological similarity between god and man or in man's capacity and i like to think of it our man's capacity to stand in, a, in this i thou relation with mm -hmm. god and another person so to, to me and others, I think the ontological comes first. The functional needs the ontological. Mm -hmm. For something to function, for something to say it does this, you got to know what it is. Um, and so I don't, I, I don't, I prefer not to reduce the image of God to a functional view. Um, similarly, there's movements in Christology to reduce Christ to a functional view. I don't, you just gotta know who is Christ mm. before you can do that. Yeah, it makes uh, sense. With function, you gotta know who he is. Or, and like that, with that, before we can do any functioning, we gotta know that we have the capacity to do those functions. So there's something, I think, profoundly ontological about the image of God. And um, we function as his co reagent. It's still his, it's his creation, he owns it. And yes, we do have these faculties that people like to list, but there is no 
For instance, in Exodus, we get the Ten Commandments. Well, we don't have a list of ten criteria or ten qualifications of what it means to be in the image of God. Scripture doesn't give us that. Mm. It doesn't delineate that. Um, doesn't explicitly give that. So we're left to do some work and think about that. Um, so we do have rationality. We do have self-consciousness. We do have this sense of freedom, freedom of choice, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And but again, we're, we have these things because they, we, were there, they were, we were created in a specific fashion, image, likeness of God. We weren't simply created, as we get the sense in earlier in the Genesis account about how all the other creatures were. But there's that demarcation, image, likeness. Yeah. But humans are created and fashioned after something, and that something is mainly God. And so it's very natural that this is with respect to God's creation of a thing as a whatness, metaphysical term, the whatness of something. Um, and the capabilities or relations that ensue seem properly grounded in the thing, but not in the relations or events themselves. Okay, mm -hmm. so we can, we can share in a dominion mandate. We have these other capabilities. We can function in this way as the apex of God's creation as a means to give him glory and that type of thing. But it's who we are that allows us those things to happen in terms of our proper functioning. So creation these, the creation describes us as image bearers, but in a holistic sense. Yeah. And I think that's the reason why we don't get a list. Because the, we don't want to start reducing things to, oh, that's the image of God. You're that, just at these things. That makes sense. And I think hey. that's one reason he doesn't. Go ahead. Jerry, I hate to intervene here, but I want to leave us some time to deal with the substance of the soul. But first, Curtis, do you have any questions, any follow-up questions you'd like to ask before we move on to the next section? I think I think what's, what is um, good about getting a good basis of the image of who we are and who we're created in and who we are to resemble not only gives us um, motivation for one to be creative and to be um, yes. built for community and to love and to develop certain aspects of life. This, the next thing, though, is also it gives us that security knowing we are made in the image of God. We then know that we ultimately have a creator that has that has created us well what has that creator done that creator has provided a way for us to be in communion and in co community with him tabernacle and that, with was us. Done, yeah. that was done through the cross yeah and i think so we have a uh natural revelation but we also have then the written revelation uh, to be able to find that information out. Very good. Yeah, I, 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 you're right. I'm going to embellish on that a little bit. In that, I, you know, I talked about general revelation in the previous podcast. Um, God's power, God's majesty. Um, but the 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 all those things that you mentioned, you know, the community aspect, mm -hmm. um, the relational aspect. Um, they are 
there's 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 a whole list there's a holistic aspect there that we don't that necessarily share with the rest of the animal kingdom um, in terms of those things and brings it back to the to that uniqueness and one of the things I've always tried to stress when I do talk about Genesis with people particularly believers I say you know you must see from Genesis God is your creator you must see that. I don't care what the rest of your views of Genesis are. You gotta yeah. see that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and if you don't see that, you're gonna have real trouble with the rest of, you know, with the rest of with the with the rest of Scripture and you know, the whole unveiling of, of, you know, revealing of Christ later on. I mean, you've got to see that. Absolutely. So. Jerry, this this next section in our in our final section uh, is, is going to deal with the um, issue of the soul, and this this is a this is a topic that's near and dear to me. Uh, but you know, we've talked off podcast before uh, about it. It seems the the increasing increasing um, the, the increasing growth of monism. Uh, that is the belief of only the the body, but no, not necessarily a soul. Even among conservative Christian circles, and I'm thinking one of Stanley Grins, uh, a theologian who uh, in, in his works have, has even uh, spoken of the community of God, but, but doesn't really believe in, in the hope that is uh, in the intermediate state where the soul goes to be with God and the body goes in the ground. He, he believes that the final hope is in the resurrection and not necessarily in an afterlife, even though, it, to me, it seems pretty clear-cut that the Scripture teaches that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So we're yeah, dealing yeah. with issues here of um, the soul. And um, there are differing interpretations of what substance dualism is. And uh, I know um, even, um, I was trying to think of his name, um, he wrote a book, uh, he, he's a Thomist, uh, Phaser, Edward Phaser, Ed Phaser, uh, he, he holds to a um, hylomorphism view, but he still yes. qua- quantifies that as substance dualism. Um, yeah. So, as we talk about substance dualism, uh, let, let's first, and you've done a lot of research with J.P. Moreland. I know you talked told me off air that you even have conversations with Dr. Moreland uh, through Zoom, you know, and different uh, means like that. So, you have a lot of resources at your disposal on this issue. So, what is? Let's first of all start off. What is substance dualism? What do we mean by that? Uh, let, let's let's start there as we navigate these uh, difficult waters. Yeah, I'm going to try to just give a what is this concept of substance that's rooted in not surprisingly Greek metaphysics and thought of as a unified fundamental kind of entity. Now, how's that? That's kind of vague, right? You know, what, what is that? Uh, we tend to think of, in our world today, substance is like something, you know, we smear or we can touch, we feel it has uh, physical characteristics to it. Uh, but in, in terms of the Greek metaphysics and how we're going to work with it, um, it can, it's, it's, a, it's a bearer of properties, you know, a person or animal. Uh, if you think of it as a subject, it can be severe of properties from the and the etymology, the word Latin word substantia, with that word sub, just it has this idea of that which lies below, hmm. that which lies below or exists underneath something else. So there's this idea of substance in the sense that we're taking it of something below um, and uh, holding something 
uh, how am I gonna put this? I'm trying to get get get, get away from just thinking about the physical. Now, substance dualism then is very simple. It just says the person is made up of two substances: matter, physical stuff, and mind, mm-hmm. or immaterial stuff. And that's the from my previous talk about that which is girding it underneath. That mind, you might get a better sense of the mind, the thing that's there, but you can't see, it's underneath, it's, uh, you know, that. It, so it's very challenging just from the terminology to understand what we're dealing with. So that's the simple definition. Human beings are comprised of two substances, matter, physical, well, we know that, and mind, the immaterial, which leads to the concept of the soul. Um, and some people, there is some identity, you know, mind, the soul, sometimes we see them as synonymous. Um, and, but again, I think for purposes of discussion and understanding, we've got to tease them apart, but I got to stress again, the traditional Christian understanding is more, is a substance dualist position, but a holistic substance dualist position, right? you know, integrated, mm-hmm. um, there's a oneness there. Uh, it, again, it's the analogy to the Trinity, or how was how was Jesus both man and God in one? You know, it's the same same concept, same metaphysics are kind of involved here. Um, and so, substance dualism is asking, you know, uh, and we're getting a philosophy of mind. You know, what is the relationship between the mental and the physical? Um, the mental life. That's another way of thinking about the mind as an immaterial, some mental, mm-hmm. the mental aspects. And that leads to the question of consciousness. What's up with that? Yeah. What is this thing called consciousness? And that is a huge philosophy of mind issue and conundrum. Um, and also has implications in the area of neuroscience today. We're trying to figure that out. What is this thing called consciousness? Go ahead. Yeah. Was somebody gonna? Uh, I, I, I want. Do you want to say something, uh, Brian? Well, yeah. I, I I was just going to go ahead and lead into the next uh, the next question. So here again, as we mentioned, that there is a debate even among Christian circles, and to me, I mean, yeah, like you mentioned, there is a wholeness, a holistic. Um, aspect of if scripture where it talks about you know the importance of body and soul but there is there are definitely distinctions uh, that the scripture draws out and even as we mentioned before the distinction of being absent from this body is present with the lord but paul notes that that it's a temporary separation and it'll be blended again at the final resurrection um but i'm surprised at the number of people um that do hold this monistic viewpoint. So let, let, let me let me uh, let's just go on the next. Say this, to, your, to your to your point, you're making substance dualism model is the only one that comports with the life after death separation of body. So Absolutely. Not now. I'm just saying. Is that a, is that a is that a bone? Is that a point? In, is that an argument in favor of the something? Yes, I do. I think it is. Um, a property dualist, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. A physicalist, doesn't work. Emergentism, which is 
kind of like is a pro is is similar to property dualism. Is the idea that mind and mental emerges is a property of the physical, but it's not. Substitutionalism separates that they're different. Property dualism emerges and says, "Well, this this mental life kind of supervenes or emerges from the complexity." Um, and that's I hope I'm being clear on that. that yeah, yeah. Very, so you know, those are the other models out there, but they can't handle the idea of a of a uh, soulless body or a. A, a uh, intermediate state, if you want. So, so, so here again to, to give you time on this one, because believe it or not, we're, we're about out of time on on this. We, we, there's just a lot of good stuff to cover. What evidence do we have that the conscious soul is separate from the material body? Uh, the one that comes to mind, and you're familiar with it, is near-death experiences. Yeah. Gary Habermas at Liberty, this is kind of his second area, second to, those, to his resurrection studies. He's done a lot of work on NDEs, and there is a literature on this. Absolutely. Uh, medical literature on this. Um, NDEs are very, very interesting um, with the stories that, or that what these people communicate after they have come out of their 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 uh, unconscious state for whatever reason they were there and they retell things that turned out to be factual um and that there was no other way they, they could have ever even known they were unconscious yeah um so you know ndes are a fascinating um area of study and a lot of work is going on in that area I think, I agree with Dr. Habermas, NDEs are a huge problem for naturalism. Absolutely. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to say it's a slam dunk for Christianity um, or dualism, but it does indicate something else is going on other than the physical. Yeah. Um, uh, these people are on, a, you know, let's say they're on an operating table or something, or and they are like they, they go out and they're seeing things yep. well how does something how are you seeing things when you're unconscious on the table mm -hmm. um, now god is a material okay he doesn't have a brain and he can see and do things just fine mm -hmm. you know my point is the brain is an organ these people with their ndes are saying while they're in an unconscious state physically, that they saw things. One gentleman, or I, was a, I don't know, was a, reported about an accident uh, that was five blocks away from the hospital. And he came out of his, his unconscious state and reported details that nobody else in the, uh, not, not, nobody, none of the other physicians or nurses knew about, about that accident. And he described it, details. Who was hurt? How many were hurt? Policemen, and then these these observers. I mean, these uh, clinicians, these clinical folks, who he told the story to, went and checked it out or heard about it on the news and said he nailed it. And you go Twilight Zone, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
what? What? I saw him. He was on that table. And I was, you know, I, right. he wasn't out there suspended looking down. So you, you, you just, and there's many other stories like that. And many of them are getting documented. You know, I also don't want to get into MDEs as a verification of heaven and hell because some people have, you know, yeah. described some pretty heinous things that they have seen too in their near death experience. Uh, we've got to be careful with how we use this thing. But I'm saying to your question, it does seem to say there's something more going on that the body, the body is not, we are not just a physical thing. Um, that there is set, there there can be somewhat of a separation, if you will, in certain states of our senses from the material body. Um, and and to add so to your a- to add to your point to show you just how much this is occurring uh, in some of my research for a talk I gave on in the ease. Uh, I was uh, led to a a website uh, called uh, the Near Death Research uh, Experience Foundation. It's e n d e r f dot o r g n d e r f dot o r g, and they have they're compiling. This is uh, the development of uh, uh, I think it's Jeff Long, if I'm not mistaken. I may have his name wrong. A medical doctor, and he wrote a book called uh, Evidence for the Afterlife, and at last check, looking at this now, when he wrote the book, uh, they had a few thousand. At the last check now, I've got the website pulled up. The NDE Experience, uh, Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, is they now have over 5,000 experiences uh, reported globally. Not from just one region, globally. And in his book, he even lists out the uh, similarities and commonalities that are found in all of these experiences. But again, that was, I think he may have had like two or 3,000. Now it's well over 5,000 cases and growing every single year. Uh, it's, it, it's a fascinating area. I, I, I read about it several, year, you know, several years ago, a little more depth. I, have, I haven't kept up with it much. But as you, 5,000 cases... The examples, the stories, um, you, you know, you ask, you just got to say, like, uh, how do you, is hallucination? <laughs> well, okay, hallucination, but he got all the facts. <laughs> well, and, it, and you have problems like, like the case with Eben Alexander, no matter what you do with, with uh, the way he interprets his experience. The fact is, is that he was clinically brain dead. He was hooked up to a machine. There was he had a bacterial meningitis in the brain. Uh, he was hooked up to all these machines. There were no brain waves. The only function of his brain that had any operation was the the most uh, ancient, uh, the, the, like the brain stem, where you have the motor controls for the heart. That was the only thing operating. Everything, the, the conscious part of the brain. Uh, even the place where there were where hallucinations are found, uh, that part, it was dead. It was brain dead. There was nothing there. Yet he recounts having these experiences and even meets a uh, loved one that he never even knew on the other side and comes back to tell about it, uh, having some objective key criteria that he could share. That stuff you just can't make up, and I, I'm with you. You can't explain that away as a hallucination. How do you hallucinate when you're unconscious? Uh, right. And then come back to the real world and, and 
uh, come back, you know, that's the way to put it, come back to your conscious state and relate these things. Uh, that just doesn't, just doesn't fit to me. It doesn't, I don't see how that's possible. So um, it's a, it's a fascinating area and it's a real problem for the naturalists. I, I, they just have to deny it yeah. or have to attribute it to some psychological thing and they just happen to get it right. Yeah. Their stories, you know, I, I don't know what else you, I don't know what else you do with them. Um, how much time have we got left? We have uh, just a little bit, like 10 minutes left. And I want to, uh, before we uh, jump into our last question, Qu- Curtis, do you have any follow-up questions? We'll give you a chance to ask any follow-up. So, so the, what I've been pondering here this whole time is is how to frame this statement along with it is, okay, we have our physical, but we also have, like we talked, the conscience state. When we think of a memory, when we think of a smell, we think of a, um, a you know a historical event that that nobody else really took part in. Where is that stored? That's not like you can go into our physical brain and pull up the Rolodex, pull that card out, and say, "Look, here's this memory." Right. It's attached to something. What is it attached to? And then does those do those memories live on as we go into be with Christ? It's a great question, and obviously, we'd be new creatures, a new cre- you know, a new creation, a new body, and I hope some of those memories are <laughs> I have right. right with me. Uh, but yes, it's like that's just another aspect of this phenomenon, and what you're describing. A little bit is what's known as the hard problem of consciousness. Philosophers of mind of all stripes recognize this. This qualia, this hard problem, this this thing of how the how you experience a rose, how you experience the smell of a rose, mm-hmm. how you right. experience the taste of broccoli, whatever the case might be. It's this ofness or aboutness. And you know, these and, these, and then again, t- attached to something inner, our inner selves, our mind. And right. how is that physical only? How, right. You know, that's a hard problem, and they haven't solved it yet. They've, they're making, there's their models out there. There's some kind of models where the entire universe is just mine, somehow. Yeah. <laughs> again, it's back to this idea of this root matter. Pan- somehow, pantheism. Pantheism, I think is the term. The mind is just a part of, just a property of, 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 of matter. And therefore, it's natural that it makes sense that we, as individuals, have this mind. There are some philosophers that are denying the self. I read something the other day, I couldn't believe it. There is no self. You know, he's, you know that's just an illusion. I said, really? You know, I think intuitively, we all have a sense of, yeah. yeah. Or person. So this again gets to this idea where, where philosophers, scientists are going to great ends to, I don't know, deny De- deny, deny Romans or something, be be provocative, but to say there's no self, that's that's quite extreme. Like, um, 
it's just it's just incoherent almost so but that's where that's the kind of thing we're at one other thing i know we only got a couple minutes left about this is a small example about the mind and science and um but i've read articles and i think this was this uh, scientific articles about where you know people neurology where they're 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 doing things with people sticking them in poking certain areas of their brain and seeing how they respond, that type of thing. Um, this, this particular story I read is a powerful point. Um, the person who was the patient and the, the, the researcher stimulated a part of a, a, a brain that brought a memory. And the patient said, you did that. I didn't do that. They say, you did that. In other words, that memory that came forward was based on something you did. I didn't do that. Notice the word. I didn't do that. You stimulated that memory. I didn't. Well, then the question, who's the I? Who's this I or the person inside or this idea that, you know, science as the third person objective part did something physically to your brain, and you, but you're aware that you didn't do it. Yeah. You didn't bring back that memory. I find that fascinating. Um, so there's this distinction between a chemical response that produces a memory and a volitional response that produces a memory or brings back a memory. So, again, wow. this could be scientific evidence for the existence of something immaterial, something inside, the soul, the me, the I, the self, um, so maybe we'll just leave it with that. A C- uh, couple, couple of quick things, and we'll get to know, our the, final uh, question before we before we wrap up. Uh, it, going back to Swinburne, uh, he he mentioned in his book talking about the distinction between mental states coming from the soul and brain states coming from the physical brain. And it's interesting yes. how those things correlate together. And he he was even talking about how the mental. Uh, impacts the the physical and then sometimes the physical may impact the the mental but anyhow uh another quick thing you know a lot of going back to the nde scenario uh some people say that they can reproduce uh similar things with with a chemical uh stimulation of the brain but people who've had ndes say that uh that it was nothing like what they experienced it was more like an lsd trip what they evoked uh, which you know you'd had the you know the the lights or something like that, but you wouldn't have had that feeling of you you didn't have experienced the same type of euphoria. You didn't experience the same type of things. It was more like an acid trip, uh, quite honestly. Yeah. What they experienced, seeing objective things, was was far more vivid, far far more amazing than anything they experienced with with those type of things. So there is a distinction uh, from from people who've experienced those things. So real quickly before we wrap up. Um, what areas of research are important uh, do you see for biologists or even individuals who are interested in science um, seeking to argue from creation for creationism? What are some areas, untapped resources, untapped areas of research that uh, need to be explored in your estimation? That's a tough, that's, I'm not, because I'm just not familiar enough with the literature. There is a journal called Biocomplexity, uh, it's a peer-reviewed scientific journal with a unique goal. It, 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 it aims to bring in papers uh, uh, 
and scientific investigation um, to, the, to, the, to more of the intelligent design as a credible explanation for life. So, because, because questions having to do with the rule and order, like we talked about last week, the origin of information and living systems are at the heart of the controversy of, of ID. And so, this journal is actually looking, in other words, we're not trying to deal just with the philosophical aspects of ID, but actually doing scientific work, um, modeling to, to show that ID can contribute scientifically to the, you know, in terms of the literature. Um, so specific areas, man, they're looking at all kinds of different things uh, across spectrum of the informational part, the irreducible complexity, uh, neurology, um, postulating mechanisms, various molecular mechanisms. It should be this if it was evolution, but might be might look this way if it was intelligent design. So, but to get real specific on that, I'd be I'm not quite, don't quite have that information. No, that's, that's fair. Well, Jerry, brother, it has been an honor and privilege to have you with us uh, on uh, these two these two episodes. And so uh, we hope to have you back real soon. And everyone, you can find uh, the writings of uh, Jerry Bogatz here on BellatorChristie.com. Uh, man alive, just he, he, theology, philosophy, uh, and science, he, he's got it all going for him. So be sure to check out his articles uh, that, that are published here on BellatorChristie.com. So with that, uh, we've had an amazing journey. We're going to flip it back over to Curtis Evelo. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, Two-part interview there. We uh, whole lot of information in that one. Um, so, but we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we create an atmosphere of discussion and to become a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie podcast. Until next time, Ryan and I say, so you on, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, go to bellatorchristi.com. Bellator Christie Podcast is coming soon. The sixth season of the Bellator Christie Podcast begins Thursday, September 22nd. This season will feature three theology series. The first will delve into pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? The second series will be on soteriology, 
looking into the various perspectives on salvation. In this section, we'll handle issues concerning Calvinism, Arminianism, Thomism, and Molinism. The final series will be a second entry into the Theology Proper series as we delve into the knowledge and revelation of God. How do we know that God exists? Has God revealed Himself to humanity? If so, in what way? Does God still speak to people? These issues will be covered in a lot more. Additionally, Season 6 marks the first time in podcast history that we will offer a live video interaction with individuals on YouTube and social media. We have a lot of exciting things going on with Season 6. We hope that you'll join us for what should be an amazing ride. Season 6 begins September 22nd at 8 o'clock p.m. And you can find the Bellator Christie podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and anywhere that podcasts are found. The Bellator Christie podcast begins September 22nd. We hope to see you there.